All right, well, I want to start out with a little bit, kind of a big picture approach to this passage because I think it's really important to look at it this way, especially for us as believers today. The most accurate, true understanding of life and the world you will ever get is when you are reading the Bible. More than ever, as Christians, we desperately need to see the world as it is presented in the Bible. And so let me suggest to you this morning that when we read stories like the one that Jim just read for us, that you do not tamp down the Bible to fit your worldview, but you adjust your worldview to the worldview of the Bible. The most basic truth the Bible reveals is that that God is. He, He exists. God is real, we would say. Francis Schaeffer wrote a very famous uh, book a few decades ago. He is there, and he is not silent. God is active and present in our lives. He's not silent. Jesus Christ is risen and living and able to give present help. The Holy Spirit is real. He really is in us and with us. He really does manifest himself through his people. And this, 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 this real God, this reality and activity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the worldview of the Bible. It is the way the Bible presents the world. It's the worldview that we find in Acts. It's the worldview we find throughout the New Testament. It is the real world we are called into by God when he saved us. The New Testament believers lived in this world where the Holy Spirit was present, believed in, and manifested. This this is this story. Not only this story, but certainly this story. This is biblical New Testament reality, a world with a living God a risen Jesus, and an active, speaking Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended to heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand, Acts 2 tells us that he poured out the promise of the Father upon us. He poured out his Spirit. When when Jesus would no longer walk beside us, he sent his Spirit to be in us. And he manifests himself in our lives in many, many ways, One of them is through what we call the gifts of the Spirit. It says, when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. When he went to heaven, in other words, he sent down gifts to us as his believers, his people. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, which we've talked about many times. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's, That's what a spiritual gift is. And one of those gifts... Okay, there's, there's logic here if you're following me, okay? And one of those gifts of the Spirit is prophecy. And we come to a story in Acts where we see the Holy Spirit speaking through believers by the gift of prophecy about Paul's future. Uh, this story, I think, is very helpful for us to see what New Testament prophecy is. The Holy Spirit somehow made Agabus and other believers aware that Paul would be bound and put in prison at Jerusalem. 
and they shared that with Paul. Prophecy takes place when the Holy Spirit reveals something to you and you share that with others in your own words. In this case or in this story, the information was about the future. But often prophecies are simply something the Holy Spirit brings to your mind or lays on your heart that other believers need to hear for their encouragement or comfort or instruction. And you share that with another person or sometimes with the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, in 1 Corinthians 14, this process of, of receiving uh, a prophetic message or a prophecy is described as receiving uh, a revelation. It talks about if someone is prophesying and the other one who is seated receives a revelation, let the one who's prophesying sit down, let, let the one who received the revelation have a turn to get up and share their prophecy. Here in Acts 14, it is, is described simply as the Holy Spirit says. Agabus said, the Holy Spirit says. And then he went on to communicate that, that message. So in prophecy, you sense that the Holy Spirit says something that is for others to hear, and you share that in your own words. That is briefly, in a very brief description, what the New Testament calls prophecy or prophetic utterance. Uh, This is the gift that Paul said we are to eagerly desire along with our, right along with our pursuit of love. Remember 1 Corinthians 14.1, earnestly pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts and especially that you might prophesy. Now, I want to kind of go with that big picture uh, view into our story in Acts 21 and see how the Holy Spirit worked through this gift. And we're going to kind of back up now and kind of cover the details of this chapter. Uh, Paul was on his way home from his third missionary journey. And after his emotional farewell to the elders uh, from Ephesus, uh, Paul and the men who traveled with him got on a ship and they headed for Jerusalem. And this was not an easy departure. Verse 1 says, When we had torn ourselves away from these brothers, we sailed straight for Kos. Uh, it says they transferred to another ship at Patera, heading to Phoenicia. I mean, just like today, we would uh, catch a connecting flight to another location. Uh, they did that same thing with ships in those, those days. They caught a, a connecting uh, ship uh, to, to the city of their destination. Then Luke says that they had to stop at Tyre to unload cargo. We don't know what that cargo was, but it was going to take several days for them to unload the cargo. So Paul and the men with him got off the ship. And it says that they sought out the disciples there at Tyre. And just as a side note, I mean, one of the, one of the unmistakable marks of a true follower of Jesus is that you are drawn to be with other disciples. I mean, it's just, it's just like there's something inside you that just, I want to go seek out other disciples. Well, these disciples at Tyre kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. I understand that means that they, they warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem based on information they had received through the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, the Holy Spirit revealed to these believers that Paul would be in great danger in Jerusalem. And out of their concern for Paul, they said, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. And this is essentially uh, the same thing that happens just a little bit later on in this passage when Paul is at Caesarea, and we'll get to that in a moment. Through the, through the Spirit, that phrase, through the Spirit, doesn't mean it was communicated in, in some strange words or voice. Uh, they shared this in their own words, in a normal voice, but they had a, a strong sense that the Holy Spirit had revealed that to them. And Paul and Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, obviously felt that too, because that's how Paul, Luke describes it. He described it as it was a message that came through the Spirit. Um, after they appealed to Paul not to go to Jerusalem, Paul and the brothers uh, got back on the ship to continue their journey. And again, um, as we pointed out here a couple of weeks ago, look, look at the, the great affection among the disciples. Uh, verse 5, when our days there were ended, they all, talking about all the disciples at, uh, at Tyre, along with Paul and Luke and Gaius and Aristarchus and all these godly men that were traveling with him, they all got together, again, with their, with their wives and their kids. And it says that they all accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Man, I hope you can get that picture in your mind. You can just you sense the, the brotherhood. You sense the, the closeness, the affection, the love for one another. Kind of, I kind of envision them all, maybe, maybe even in a circle on, on the beach, kneeling down, holding hands with tears running down their face, praying earnestly for, for, for Paul and Paul praying for them. And if you remember, it was, it was just like that when Paul uh, left Miletus, when he left the elders from Ephesus at Miletus, it says they all wept and they embraced him and kissed him. Tremendous love and affection. And my only comment on that is may, may the Lord give us this kind of love and affection for one another. And I believe we have it in measure, but we want that more. I want that for this church family. I want even more of that for this church family. I pray for that. But I also know that that kind of loving bond comes only as we together totally abandon ourselves to the Lord and His work. I mean, this is, this is, it's a kind of affection. It's a, it's a kind of an emotional attachment. It's a kind of deep love for one another that comes as we are in this thing together, as we are, we are committed to the Lord, we are concerned about the things of the Lord. We are giving ourselves to Jesus and to His work. And then this amazing kind of uh, deep bond of fellowship and love attaches our hearts to one another. Uh, yes, uh, Friday morning I, I had uh, coffee with my uh, dear brother Paul, twin brother. We don't, and we don't get together very often. It's kind of strange. I mean, we, 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 we're very close, but... We don't actually get together. We don't need to get together. We just, we're 
we were just close without even being together. I know it sounds crazy, but I hadn't gotten together with him for months. Uh, but the affection between us is, you know, it's just, it's just it's, it's tremendous. And part of it is because we're twins. But I totally believe that most of it is because we've been in the ministry together for decades. And we, we had that common bond of, of, of seeking to know and love and serve Jesus, seeking to, to, to shepherd uh, the, the churches that, that God's assigned us to. Uh, we've, been, we've been through the, the pain and the joy, uh, you know, the dishonor and the glory of ministry, been through everything together. And there's, just, there's this bond of affection that comes when, when we are in this thing together. And I'd also like to, to say from this, or just point out, and these are, these are little I guess I would call them little side messages from my main thrust. But I'd also like to say that these stories um, show that it is good to kneel when we pray. You know, when Paul left the elders at Ephesus, it says they all knelt down and prayed together. And here at Tyre, it says they all knelt down on the beach and prayed. And of course, we know we, we can pray. You can pray in any position, any time, in any place. And we have the freedom to pray without any outward ceremony or formality. But that, that should not be taken to the point where we don't know what it means to get on our knees before the Lord, either in private or when we pray together. There, there is something about getting on your knees before the Lord that reminds us how much we need God, that we are so dependent upon Him, and that we are coming humbly before him, and that's why I think it just it just it just came naturally. It, it wasn't like it wasn't like Paul. I don't think Paul had to command them. Okay, now everybody, we got to get on our knees to pray. No, I mean they just fell to their knees out of their love and reverence and depend, humble dependence upon the Lord. Verse seven: When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. I'm going to go with Jim's pronunciation there. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. All right, Philip, we've heard of him before. Philip was one of the the seven men who was chosen in Acts 6 to to wait on tables, to be of service so that the apostles could stay busy with preaching the word and in, and, and in prayer. And Philip had a, had a remarkable ministry. He was a man full of the spirit, uh, full of faith. Uh, he had a remarkable ministry in Samaria, proclaiming Jesus there. I believe that's in, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say the chapter because I'm not, not totally sure. But anyway, earlier in Acts, he had a tremendous ministry in Samaria. Uh, many were saved, many were healed, evil spirits came out of many people. And God was using this guy, Philip, in an amazing way. Well, Luke calls him here the evangelist. And that was the predominant gift of the Spirit working in his life. And he had four unmarried daughters who all had the gift of prophecy. What a, what, what a blessing this was to have four girls with the spiritual gift of prophecy. Uh, you know, we would, uh, I, I kind of get the idea that it's almost like saying, uh, it was just something re- something somewhat remarkable. It was like, um, 
if we said, talked about such and such a family and said they have twins or triplets or quadruplets, you know, that would be kind of a remarkable thing to say about a family. Well, it's like, well, here's four girls with the gift of prophecy. And, you know, when I read this passage, the, the thought came to mind. I think I've mentioned this before at times that I would love to be able to do some time travel. Well, I would love to go back and have dinner with this family. I mean, wouldn't you love to just sit around the table with Philip the evangelist? He's got four daughters who could prophesy. I mean, what, what an experience that would be. Well, after uh, or about 20 years had passed since Philip had preached the gospel in Samaria. Of course, he now lives in Caesarea. He was apparently still practicing this gift of evangelism. I mean, Luke, otherwise I don't think Luke would have called him Philip the evangelist. But he had also, during this 20 years, he'd raised a family of four girls. And these four daughters obviously were brought up to know and love Jesus. Uh, They were taught about the Holy Spirit and experienced his gifts working in them. I I have read several stories. I can't say how many, but I've read a few stories over the years about highly gifted evangelists who neglected their families. And their families really suffered emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually because of that. But Philip knew his responsibility was not only to win others, but to win his own kids to the Lord and to bring them up in a, in a spirit-saturated home and to bring them to Jesus and to bring them into an, into an experiential relationship with the Holy Spirit and to teach them about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's a, just a great example for the kind of priorities that, that we should have for our own, for our own kids, with our, with our kids and even, even our grandkids. And, and also we see how, the, how the, the daughters had different gifts than their dad. And I think sometimes as parents we want our kids to have the same strengths and the same gifts that we do. But, in other words, we want them to be like us. Uh, but that is, that is just not the way God works. I mean, Philip is called as an evangelist. You, you can just, just imagine his calling and gifting and the, and the power with which he preached the gospel. He's got four girls with completely different gifts. They, their gifts are to prophesy. I think sometimes husbands and wives want their spouse to have the same gifts that they have. Some people want everybody in the church to have the same gifts that they have. But again, it's just not the way God God works. And it is significant that it that it is four that it was four daughters who prophesied. Uh, on the day the Holy Spirit was poured out, Peter said, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old, old men will dream dreams. Again, point. Sons and daughters will prophesy. First uh, Corinthians 11, I believe, talks about women prophesying in... Well, it definitely talks about women prophesying. I, the, 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 I think the clear assumption is, their context is that that is in the church meeting. Uh, while women are not to teach or exercise authority as the elders in the church meeting, they can... and and are called to, encouraged to exercise spiritual gifts, one of which is to prophesy. Verse 10, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This, isn't, this is not, isn't the first time we've heard of Agabus. Uh, back in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, um, Agabus had stood up, probably again, he'd stood up in a church meeting and foretold, it says, by the Spirit, he foretold by the Spirit that there was a great famine coming. Well, that, that same Agabus was, was in Judea, but he came down to Caesarea, it says, where Paul was, and the Holy Spirit had said something to him or, or shown him something about Paul. And so apparently he, he came up. This is kind of how I imagine this happening. He came up. There's probably some disciples there together. And he said, hey, Paul, let me see your belt for a minute. And so Paul said, okay. Took off his belt, gave it to Agabus. Agabus bound his, his hands and, his, and his, his own hands and his feet. And then he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. The man who owns this belt will be bound up like this or like me by the Jews at Jerusalem and delivered over to the Gentiles. Well, Luke says, when we heard this. So, so he's including himself here. So when Luke said, we heard this, this means uh, Luke and the men traveling with Paul, the other believers at Caesarea, seemingly or apparently kind of together said, we urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And again, that's the same thing that the disciples at Tyre said, do not go to Jerusalem. So these, this very godly group of men, they, they saw, they heard this prophetic message from Agabus. They saw the, the, this prophetic, in a sense, drama worked out before them. And they drew a conclusion from it. Paul should not go to Jerusalem. Well, Paul heard this prophetic message too, he saw this drama worked out before him with this man bound up with his hands and feet. But he drew a different conclusion. He took it as confirmation of serious trouble ahead, a warning that was not necessarily meant to change his plans. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit does reveal information about the future, uh, possibly to bring a warning or to give us courage to walk into something hard. Uh, interesting, Cindy and I watched a, a, a movie on Polycarp this Friday night. Uh, he, was, he was one of the very first Christian martyrs. It didn't include this story in it, but I, look, I, I had read about it before and was reminded of it. And three days before Polycarp uh, was arrested, he had a vision um, of his pillow bursting into flames around his head. And Polycarp said he had no question what this meant. And he, he turned to his friends and said, I'm, I'm going to be burned. I'm going to be burned alive. And he was three days later. And he, but he went to his death with incredible courage and bold testimony about the name of Jesus in the face of such suffering. But the Holy Spirit had warned him that that was, was coming. Um, I've had experiences like that in my life. Um, hopefully. Hopefully we have time. I didn't put this in my notes, but I'm, I'm going to take a risk and jump in and share it. Quite a ways back in, in our ministry at Real Life Church, we, we had a, there was a family that had uh, become 
uh, I, I'm, gonna say, I'm just going to say they become really, really bitter about some, about some things in the church and toward the leadership. And uh, we had decided that a couple of other, a couple other couples had kind of volunteered to go meet with them and try to try to kind of tamp things down and bring peace and and unity. And we thought, okay, sounds that sounds like a good plan. So the, the this meeting was was going to happen, and uh, I, was, I was you know I was I thought this you know this is a good thing, but the the night of that meeting, the Holy Spirit said this is not going to turn out good. <laughs> and uh, the Holy Spirit told me that the couples that are going to meet with them are going to be changed to the bitter people's position. The bitter people's position is not going to be changed to their position. And that's exactly what happened. But I, it, was, it, was like, it was like a prophetic warning that I just, I just knew. I mean I, I mean, I knew it as clear as could be. In fact, I mean, I drove over there where this meeting was taking place I never went in, sat out, sat out in my car, and just and prayed and prayed earnestly because I just just had this sense that something good or something not good was was going down, and that and that was the case. And sometimes, sometimes God, uh, you know, sometimes we think of prophecy as 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 grand, being foretold of grand and glorious things. <laughs> you know, and I, I, honestly, that's a lot of times what we hear today. Only is just you know something incredibly wonderful is going to happen to you. And I think that can can be a word of prophecy, but on, you know, honestly, a lot of the prophetic words in the New Testament were were, were warnings that hard things are coming. Uh, gonna, there's going to be suffering ahead. You need to get ready, be prepared for that. Okay. I uh, hope I didn't divert us too far off track by that. Let me get back to my notes here. Um, Okay, verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So, in other words, their, all, their tears uh, and their pleas were only making it harder for Paul. So he pleaded with them to stop saying that he had already made up his mind to go there regardless of the cost. All right, so why did Paul not listen to their pleading? Well, number one, he felt he had the leading of the Holy Spirit to go. He was convinced in his own heart that the Holy Spirit was leading him to go to Jerusalem. Acts 20, 22, Paul, this was at Ephesus. Paul said he was going, he said, I am going to Jerusalem compelled by the Holy Spirit. Okay, he, he, he didn't say, you know, I, I, I think it's a good idea for me to go to Jerusalem. I'm thinking about going to Jerusalem. I'm planning to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to Jerusalem. No, it wasn't any of that. He said, I am constrained or compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Uh, secondly, these prophecies of, of, of trouble and imprisonment only confirmed what the Holy Spirit had already been saying to him. Again, he told the elders at Ephesus in chapter 20, in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And a lot of commentators think that that that, that warning came to him through 
through prophecies. Maybe it just came directly to his heart from the Holy Spirit, but somehow the Holy Spirit testified to him, Paul said, in every city. He apparently had received words of prophecy everywhere he went about serious trouble ahead. And this, so these messages, prophetic messages at Caesarea and at Tyre, just confirmed what he'd been hearing from the Holy Spirit in every city anyway. Third, the third reason was that he had already chosen to walk into the suffering at Jerusalem. And I, get, I credit Deanne for that phrase of walking into the suffering. She brought that up in her life. I don't know where she's at right now. She might be teaching with, helping with kids. But she, uh, we, uh, uh, we talked about this Wednesday night at our, our, our life group. And so, sometimes the Holy Spirit just prepares us to walk into the suffering, to walk right into it, knowing it with our eyes wide open that things are going to be hard. And we just, we just choose to... Oh, there's Deanne. Sorry, right behind Donna. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, just want to make sure I gave you the credit for that thought. Um, we, we just, we, and that's what Paul decided to do. He decided to, based on the prophetic information that he had from the Holy Spirit, he, just, he decided to walk right into the suffering. He, was, he said he was fully prepared not only to be bound and imprisoned, he was, he was even ready to die at Jerusalem. You know, when Martin Luther was on his way to the, to the Diet of Worms, um, where he was likely to be imprisoned or even burned as a heretic, many of his friends tried to talk him out of going, just, just like his friends tried to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem. But he said, if there were more devils in worms than tiles on the roofs, still I would go. He had that, that inner compulsion, that constraint of the Holy Spirit, that that was what he was supposed to do. This is a good lesson about the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, an older uh, Bible commentator by the name of G.R. Levitt said, uh, said this, The disciples were led by the Spirit, so was Paul. Their leading did not conflict with his, though it seemed to do so. The warning voice said, If you go on, you will be imprisoned and slain. But the voice within said, Go on, though you are imprisoned and slain. The two voices were of the same spirit. The interpretation of the voices was for Paul to give. Every man has the voice of the Spirit for himself. Listen to the voice of the Spirit within you. Yield yourself to His influence. You can tell whether you are following Him. End of quote. All right, so what do we take away from this story about prophecy? Um, there's there's several, several things. First of all, in a biblical worldview, in other words, if, if, we, if we view as Christians, if we view life, if we view the Christian life, if we view the world in a biblical way, then there is such a thing as a spiritual gift of prophecy. I mean, that's, that's just part of the biblical worldview. Paul spends an entire chapter explaining 
extolling the benefits of this gift and commanding the church to earnestly desire to prophesy. Uh, and we see it everywhere in the New Testament. And I'm just going to run through some of these, these passages. In Acts 2 and 19, prophecy is used just to praise God, to declare the mighty works of God. Just the Holy Spirit puts thoughts and words in your heart and just burst forth in, in glorious praise to God. Acts 15 Prophecy is used to encourage and strengthen believers. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said, In the church meeting, the one who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening and encouragement and comfort. Also in that chapter, Paul said, Prophecy serves, can serve to bring unbelievers under conviction. And it serves to reveal the presence of God in the church meeting. When individual believers are prompted to speak and share by the Holy Spirit, he said people are going to come in and say, wow, God is certainly among you guys. God is certainly in this place, in this church meeting. Acts 11, uh, prophecy which we referred to earlier, was given about a great famine. And that prophecy gave the church wisdom on where to go, where to send funds uh, to prepare for that need. Acts 13, prophecy served to confirm that the Lord was was uh, was calling people, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas, in that case, to go out as missionaries from the church. First Timothy one eighteen prophecies confirmed that Timothy Timothy was to serve the Lord in a certain way. Uh, for, uh, the verse says, "This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by recalling them, you may." wage or fight the good warfare. Uh, Timothy had responsibilities to the Lord that had been revealed by prophecies, it says. And so Paul was just saying to Timothy, okay, you know, remember those prophecies that were made about you. Remember those so that by remembering them, you can be strong and fight the good fight all the way to the end. 1 Timothy 4.14, prophecy was used to recognize or impart spiritual gifts. Again, to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And apparently as a group of elders at some point early in Timothy's life uh, laid their hands on Timothy and prayed for him and and someone by the prompting of the Holy Spirit uh, said, Timothy, receive the gift of whatever, teaching or perhaps evangelism or something else. And and that gift was given to him. He had gifts that were given to him um, when the group of elders laid their hands on him. It was given to him through or by the gift of prophecy. And, of course, here in Acts 21, the Holy Spirit spoke to Agabus that Paul would be bound and imprisoned at Jerusalem. And, I mean, I I could go on and on, but there's just... My, my point is that this, this gift was, was all throughout the New Testament church. It was, it was, I mean, it was, just, it was a part of the warp and woof of, of New Testament living. And I think when we have a biblical worldview, it will be in a proper way. It will be part of the warp and woof of our church life and our Christian life. Number two, in a, in a biblical worldview, there is such a thing as personal prophecy. Uh, and I mean by that a prophecy, a word or a message that, that the Holy Spirit prompts one person to give to another. 
And that's clearly what was going on here at Acts 21. And, uh, you know, I, th- I, th- I think that that's something, that's, that's, that's something that we should uh, desire and, and seek, seek to do. And I, I make no claims of operating in, in the gift of prophecy in a very, very proficiently at all, but I, I, do, I do seriously obey the, the command of Scripture. It says to earnestly desire that, and I seek that. I, I, uh, you know, I, I met Jim Jordahl for breakfast yesterday morning. Before I got out of bed, I, I prayed, Lord, if you have a word or a, a thought or a truth uh, for Jim that would bless and encourage him, you know, let me know that. Bring that to my mind. I want to sh- bring something. I want to bring a, a word from you. Uh, for him, and I, th- I think we should should do that. I, you know, uh, and I sure I I did. I felt like God brought something to mind. I shared I shared that with with Jim. A couple of cautions about personal prophecy, especially this this gift can be abused. I mean, someone could use this gift to to try to uh, manipulate manipulate you or to man- manipulate others, and, and they could just be wrong. And uh, you know, sometime back. One prophecy that I kept hearing over and over and over again, and I, boy, I hope if somebody had this prophecy made over you and it's really near and dear to your heart, I, believe me, I am not, I'm not uh, making fun, mocking this at all. But it was just like, it, it seemed like everybody was getting this prophecy that uh, God is going to fill stadiums with people coming to hear you, you know, that, or you're going to fill stadiums. There's going to, you're going to, pe- people are going to, well, that could be of the Holy Spirit, but when something is kind of said over and over to a lot of people, it could be just repeating something uh, that you've heard others say that sounded sounded great or cool, and and it just it could just be of your imagination. So I think you know I think we have to be careful. I've also kind of seen seasons in the church where it seemed like everybody was being called to a certain country, you know. God's calling you too, and it's like everybody's being called too. Well, you know, I, I, I think we have to use caution in those kind of things. Generally, a word of prophecy will ring true to the person receiving it or not. Uh, the Holy Spirit told the disciples at Tyre that, and, and at Caesarea that serious trouble was waiting for Paul at Jerusalem. Well, the Holy Spirit already told Paul the same thing. I mean, he, it, was, it was like... Okay, what, what you're saying that the Holy Spirit is saying, it's the same thing the Holy Spirit's been saying to me. And I think when, when prophecy rain, is, is true, truly from the Holy Spirit, there will be that kind of, of synergy being spoken from someone else, but also it's being spoken to your own heart. Uh, second, you do not have to follow a personal prophecy if it doesn't bear witness with your spirit. Again, you know, Paul agreed with what the Holy Spirit showed Agabus, but he, he didn't agree uh, to change his plans. Kind of related to that is that uh, if, if, a, if a word is, is given, a personal prophecy is, is given to you or about you, uh, you don't have to try to fulfill that in your own effort. If it's from God... He, he's going to work and move in your life and circumstances for it to come about. So don't let don't let anybody put don't let anybody put a put you under a load or put you under some huge burden that you feel like you got to try to fulfill uh, a word about you. 
It can, but it can be to stir your heart. It can be to move, to move you, to remind you. It can, can be to, to, to do that. I'm just saying it shouldn't place you under some kind of law or burden. Uh, third, all prophecy is in part. Uh, teachers do not teach perfectly. Evangelists do not evangelize perfectly. Uh, Paul said we prophesy in part. So we encourage everybody to exercise spiritual gifts, but at the same time, we recognize that all spiritual gifts will be exercised with human weakness. Uh, so you know, John Piper has some excellent stuff on the gift of prophecy, and he, he points out that the, the, the word of the Holy Spirit is, is, is always true and correct, but our interpretation of that and our, the way that we communicate that to others is not always true correct or, or, or perfect in that. So if somebody, if somebody misses on a prophecy or you know, just doesn't bear witness with us, um, or, or even if they don't share it in a way that we think is quite the right way or even at the right time, I think we should be gracious, gracious and forbearing. I mean, if, if we're going to encourage one another to exercise spiritual gifts, there has to be an atmosphere of, of, of grace and of freedom. Otherwise, nobody is ever <laughs> going to exercise any. I mean, if you guys demand that I teach perfectly up here, I'm done. You know, I just quit. Uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, once said, and he was talking about parents with kids, but it's a very, very powerful statement. He said, if, if you expect perfection or nothing, you will get nothing. And that, that's so true with with the, with the spiritual gifts. If, if our atmosphere is we demand perfection or, or else or nothing, we're going to we'll get nothing. Uh, fourth, we should not fall into the idea that we need a word or a message for everything we do. I mean, there are people that fall into this dangerous idea that they need a word from someone uh, for, for pretty much everything they do. Personal prophecies are not a substitute for personally seeking the Lord's will, carefully searching the scriptures to discern God's leading. Um, And it should not be a substitute for for getting counsel from godly men or women or spiritual leaders. But, Acknowledging the potential problems with this gift should not keep us from pursuing it, desiring it, and seeking to ex- exercise it. Um, believers who do who do who desire to prophecy to prophesy are doing what the Scripture tells us we should do. I want to go back for a moment to the idea of biblical worldview. Our view, our view of the world, our Christian worldview, is that God is working here and now through the Spirit in the lives of believers. That God, God is here and now. He is communicating, encouraging, guiding, warning, directing. And one of the ways He does that is through prophetic words or messages. And our perspective is that is, I mean, God has spoken infallibly and finally to us 
in the Bible. Let me say that again. God has spoken infallibly and finally to us in the Bible. That is our one and only foundation of truth. But the Bible itself tells us and gives examples to us, like this story, that he also communicates in a more subjective way through fallible human beings like us by means of the Holy Spirit through the gift of prophecy. And it should be a huge... Inc- this, this gift, when I, when, I, when I have experienced it working, it's, it's a huge comfort. It's a huge encouragement that God is here and now speaking what we need for the moment. And the, the Holy Spirit is more willing than you think to speak into your life. He's more willing than you think to speak into others' lives through you. And then one final message. Uh, we, we must hear from this scripture, from this passage of scripture. Like Paul, our life goal must be to live for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. At any cost to ourselves. I'm ready not only to be bound and in prison. I mean, I'm ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's a really important statement. That's a really important perspective. I mean, you talk about worldview. That needs to be a part of our worldview. That needs to be a part of the way that we view Life. We're ready. We're ready for anything, even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that our hearts this morning would be stirred by, by the very high value that Paul placed on Jesus and the way that he placed every other personal goal in life, including his own comfort and safety, even life itself, below the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and prophecies, spiritual gifts, don't mean anything if the first and foremost thing in our life is not living for the name of Jesus. If Paul and the men and women in these stories were not devoted to Jesus, there would be no story here. And so, in closing this morning, I just want us to search our hearts and just want to ask, what, what are you living for, really? May my heart, may your heart, may our hearts be, be captivated by Jesus, be captivated by living for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.